Gratitude and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness explores our relationship with grief, the gratitude for our humanity, and the greatness we attain when we tell our stories. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. As a chef and restaurant owner, Tommy learned his trade working with some of the most recognizable names in the culinary world. His industry is just coming to terms with its prevalence of alcohol and drug use. I sat down to speak with Tommy about grief and learn that much of his healing has come from addressing his own addiction. Food and music were always really connected for me, and my brother Michael was the one who really got me into so much great music. And his friend Pete Ryan had a band called Bulkhead in Boston in the late 80s. Such a great music, you know, throwing muses, and that's where like the Pixies started and all that. I mean, all this great music coming out of Boston right around then. Mission of Burma, of course. When he moved up there, I would go up and visit. You know, they were DIY, out-of-college kids. It's so silly, but I remember breakfast, like cooking potatoes. They were using spices like cumin. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is cumin? <laughs> you know, I mean, this is amazing. <laughs> you know, it's just was uh, the food that I grew up with was Italian-American food. My aunt is actually from Puglia. So I had a lot of good exposure to Italian food, but not much else. You know, my dad was Polish and Ukrainian. So my mom would cook some of the blandest versions of stuffed cabbage and things like that. I was never really exposed to a whole lot. So I think I was just interested in anything that had spice that was <laughs> that was exciting, yeah. you know, like whether it was writing or music. I remember reading Jack Kerouac in junior high school and just being like, oh, yeah. so excited by any of the beats and anything like that got me going. That's awesome. And then punk rock, of course. So it's food, music, and literature. But and art, too. I mean, I've always definitely been into art. And theater. I think when I was in junior high, I did a couple of musicals. I remember being in Carousel and Oliver. And then in high school, I went to an all-boys high school. My brother had been in the acting department or whatever there. I followed in his footsteps and was in 12 Angry Men, which, of course, you have to do in an all-boys high school. I remember the high point of my young acting career was I was in two different productions of Waiting for Godot as the boy. That was great because I got to watch Beckett every night, just dig those words and all that. At the age of 16, 17? 16, 17, yeah. That's pretty rad. Yeah. And when did you move to Portland? Well, I first came to Portland right after college, and I graduated from Fairfield University in 1994. And I moved out here right after that to be a volunteer for Habitat for Humanity for a year. I mean, I can't claim to be a super noble or anything. I just was really trying to get out of Connecticut. And it seemed like a really good thing to do. So, and it was, it really, it was a great program. And I did it for a year. There's a house on 12th and Holman that I helped build from foundation to finish. Still there, still same family, made some good friends, but I did not stay in Portland. I moved back to the East Coast. And that's when I really started cooking professionally. I went to a natural foods cooking school in New York called the Natural Gourmet started by a woman named Anne-Marie Colbin, who's really ahead of our time with that kind of food and food knowledge. 
when I finished that school, I did a small little externship and I just happened to get really lucky and do partly at Poe Restaurant, which is Mario Batali's first restaurant. Then I ended up working at Mesa Grill, which was Bobby Flay's kind of flagship restaurant. So I got this incredible New York experience right away. Yeah. At like a big restaurant and a small restaurant, both really busy. Those are some pretty grueling kitchens to work in. Yeah, there was definitely trial by fire, as they say. And so when did you know it was time to get out of the kitchen, <laughs> to get out of those kitchens? Get out. I actually, I developed carpal tunnel syndrome really badly in my hands, which is a weird thing to have happen because you've got to be tough, you know, in a kitchen, you know, yeah. no matter. It was a tough thing to have to walk away from, but I did. I had to walk away and I ended up getting surgery on both hands, was able to cook again, but still affects me from time to time. Wow. That was tough. I mean, those kitchens were pretty hard. But you decided to still stick with that career path. Yeah, I've tried to get out of it a couple times. <laughs> it just has <laughs> never worked. So restaurant culture, it's hard. It can be, yeah. Yeah. It's known for hardworking and hard living. Yeah. Is that what you point to as reason why you were imbibing a, a lot? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. You know, every industry has pressure and there's people who struggle with addiction and not every industry offers you a drink at the end of your shift <laughs> and really yeah. makes it sort of an expected thing that you're going to. It's part of the culture. Yeah, it's definitely part of the culture. I mean, I look back at it. We had, I think, a very rebellious spirit and yet we didn't rebel against that kind of behavior. We just fell into it. We took it to try to turn it up to 11, you know? Now, when you say we, who are you speaking of? Me and my other co-workers and chefs and friends, you know. I used to bartend at a microbrewery back in Kansas, where I went to <laughs> school at the University of Kansas. I do remember, you know, there's always, at some point, one of the waiters would come over and bring the order from the kitchen. When food service is over, yep. the kitchen gets served. Yep. No one ever thought twice. I mean, that. I experienced that culture back in the late 80s Yeah, when I was bartending. I think it's existed for a long time. You know, a big point in restaurant culture was, of course, when Anthony Bourdain wrote Kitchen Confidential. I was cooking in New York in the 90s. I mean, that book came out, I think, in like 99 or something like that. I remember my reaction to it being like, this is bullshit. You know, this is like a sensationalization of the restaurant industry. This is just, this is going to make everybody believe this is what the restaurant industry is all about. It was very true, but it also kind of made it more true. It sort of became, yeah, like really attractive. Being a musician and like being told by Keith Richards that this is like the way yeah. to do it. So you're saying Kitchen Confidential kind of made that lifestyle kind of sexy. Yeah. It, it validated how hard that work is. It validated that culture that, yeah, we all deserve to drink and do lines of coke to yeah. get through and whatever it is. It's funny, like looking back, I was very aware of the ridiculousness of it. And yet I still kind of embraced it. Well, I get it because I'm really fortunate that I don't have a real addictive personality. But I was a bartender for years. I waited tables too. So when you're doing like food service, you've been serving people drinks all night. There's a energy at midnight one, two in the morning, mm -hmm. what do you do with that? You can't just go home and go to sleep. That was the thing that was taught to me, you know, even by these great chefs that I worked for, who also displayed 
terrible behavior. <laughs> so I was taught that for sure, I guess. The thing that you're taught in the service industry is that no matter how much attention and glory or whatever you get put upon you, you're still a server. You're still subservient to people, to anybody who comes in that door. Yeah. And so I think there's something about that feeling of it's kind of like a self-worth thing. I think where natural self-abuse comes in, you know, unconsciously, but you are ready to really push yourself to some horrible limits, you know. I'm interested to explore that idea further, how this subservience causes you to (laughs) be hard on yourself. Or is it that, or is it that, you know, you've been serving other people and now it's time for you to serve yourself. And so the, the most obvious thing is like to have some fun, let loose, have some drinks. Very, and be very indulgent. Yeah. Being I, indulgent. Yeah. yeah. Combination of all, a lot of that. Yeah. So you're having this party lifestyle mm-hmm. concurrent to building this business. Yeah. At what point did the push come to shove for you? You know, my big thing was the smoking weed. Certainly in the restaurant business and to a lot of people, weed doesn't count people who give up drinking but don't give up smoking and i'm not trying to say anything about anybody else's journey or whatever but i mean for me it very much did count and i had been really sort of living this lie of telling myself that smoking all day long you know made me a better chef a better father I, you know i can like really be with my kids and be focused and be in tune to can hang with my daughter while, you know, and for hours and just be really, you know, and it's just, it was just BS, you know, it just was not true. Push came to shove with me going through some incredible grief over the loss of my father, really putting things in perspective for me and my relationship with my kids. I wanted to really be present and I also wanted them to see me for myself or my true self and my son had I'd seen him glorifying like he was going around going smoke weed every day <laughs> and, like, oh. and I'd even gotten this Halloween mask this sort of like hobo looking guy with a joint hanging out of his mouth and then the mask was called stoner fool whatever that means you know I'm not you know nothing just like put that up on myself but it's hard not to he does have just a good sense of humor so maybe that was what it was all about <laughs> but it really made me just be like all right I need to just stop this started going to AA and it makes you realize you, you're never going to succeed by telling somebody you've got a problem you're, you need to get help you need to do this because like that never works with anybody yeah it's something that people have to come to themselves and if you have a good example of somebody who can do it and make a positive change in their life then that is the, the most attractive thing and so for me I was very fortunate to have a really great friend and Gabriel Rucker who's a chef that I worked with at Ripe and now has become a very world-famous chef himself. He has been sober for over five years now. He started this group called Ben's Friends with Greg Gorday, who's another inspiration. You know, Gabe and I, we did some very bad behavior together. (laughs) (laughs) It's been amazing to see him really transform as a human being, as a chef, as a father. It's been inspiring, and that's what... So he took me to my first AA meeting. It's been pretty profound, pretty cool. If you'd like to support our work with grief, gratitude, and greatness, consider becoming a backer on Patreon. 
Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have a business that supports people who are listening to our show, let's talk about how you can sponsor an episode or two or three. Tell me more about this group. Ben's, the Ben's Friends? Yes. It's not AA associated, but it's a group. It's for restaurant workers. Yeah. Anybody front of the house, back of the house, in the restaurant industry who are trying to get sober, basically. Trying to be support for others. That's it. I mean, it's really, there's not much to it. It was started, I think, in South Carolina. And it's relatively new. I think it's only a few years old. We've had three or four meetings and it's really been spearheaded by Greg Gorday and, and Gabriel. It's been growing even in just like a few weeks, you know, which is cool to see. Now you're a mentor, right? Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whether you like it or not. I think as a business owner, you're a mentor to all the people who work for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's another big part of the decision to get sober. It's just, I mean, I was not being a very good mentor. Definitely this cloud of smoke between me and my workers, my business. Literally and figuratively. Yeah, exactly. I've just been trying to be more present, be better. Are you noticing a pretty remarkable difference? Without a doubt. I mean, there have been some really awesome changes going on that I'm really excited about. That's cool. Yeah. And with your kids, does yeah. it feel different? Yeah, for sure. We talk about grief. I mean, there's the obvious grief of losing your father. There's the grief of divorce that you experienced. Mm -hmm. The thing was, I was going through a lot of grief with the divorce. And then my father's passing really opened up the floodgates for sure. And yeah. I had been in a time of deep reflection. You know, I'm like getting close to 50 and who am I? What am I doing? You know, and I know like so many people go through this weird, I guess, midlife perspective, hopefully midlife perspective. So my dad, he didn't really know his dad. His dad left his family when he was really young. And so he had to kind of work and help raise his sister. And his mom worked really hard. My grandmother, she died when I was in junior high school. Mm. I think I was like in seventh or eighth grade. She worked in rectories and stuff. Also had a diner too. So oh, kinda, really? Yeah, I kind of blame her for <laughs> my career. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> she was great. But she died, I think it was like 84, 85. So my son just turned 12. Mm. I was 12 when my grandmother passed away, when my dad's mom yeah. passed. And it's just this weird sort of perspective now of my dad passing. Right. And it was like the only time I ever saw my dad cry. But yeah, I cry like so much. My wife loves to joke about how I cried at the preview for Showgirls. <laughs> the <laughs> tear up over anything when i was a kid i was a very jaded sarcastic not ever gonna cry kid you know like kind of unemotional and i remember going to see the steppenwolf theater company did a production of grapes of wrath with gary sinise as tom joad on broadway when i was in high school and I, my mom took me and my brother michael i'm getting like Oh, man, that last image, you know. I think I had maybe seen the movie, 
the book is very different. The scene at the end, so it's about the depression and his family traveling and starving, you know, and they end up at the end in this barn and the daughter has just lost her child. She was pregnant but had lost the baby but is still producing milk. They come upon a, a father who is starving because he... <laughs> just crying, think a minute. Because um, he's been putting his kids first and, and he's putting any bit of food or whatever he's got and he's fed his kid. And, and so he's starving and she feeds him, breastfeeds him. And they show this on stage <laughs> on Broadway and I just like... Just like completely got through. Wow. Like any bit of... <laughs> That's amazing for a middle schooler because I have two boys, a high schooler and a soon-to-be middle schooler. I think I might have been in high school, you know, I think when I saw it. Anything with butts and boobs is just fodder for hilarity. Totally, right? yeah. It's just ridiculousness. So the fact that that was so compelling for you and because that's theater, it's not real. It's not like you saw that. Yeah. But it drove home for you. That's amazing. Yeah, for sure. For sure, yeah. No, I still like I'm getting teared up right now. Just you know, it was a really, I mean, incredible production. I mean, that's such a great theater company and Gary Sinise. Mm-hmm. Such a great actor. Like getting into acting and theater, I mean, it's really is about empathy. You know, it's really about like trying to understand somebody's perspective. Yeah. And no matter the good, the bad, all of it, you know, it's really when you're trying to get into a character, you're trying to understand their perspective. And that's that's empathy. I mean, that's yeah. like, yeah, for sure. That's what's going to make you feel. Do you feel like that junior high kid now that you're having more clarity <laughs> in your emotions? You know, weed, booze, it's like a blanket, right? It kind of tampers down our emotions. There's like this Bob Marley quote about how marijuana like introduces yourself or there's even like i mean kind of like there's that, that black sabbath song about oh, sweetly would you know introduce me to my mind and uh, that it was like this way of getting closer in touch with your emotions i used to like smoke and walk on mount Tabor and cry and hug a tree and you know and stuff like that and think i was so kind of in touch with my emotions it's almost like hyper realism or something mm. like that it's not real there is definitely something better to having some clarity, having some perspective, and being not under the influence and feeling real feelings. You know, there's something definitely way better about that. Yeah. I do feel much more like my true self, much more like that junior high, high school kid. Have you had an experience recently where you thought, oh my gosh, this would be so different if I was stoned right now? Oh, yeah. I have that all the time. Do you? Yeah. Well, right now, probably, because <laughs> sure. it's like I was able to do it and be so highly functional, you know, for so yeah. long. I mean, start businesses, you know, I consider it to be a major part of the creative process. Like the first time that it was snowing and I was driving around, I was like, oh, God, I, you know, I remember what it was like to be, you know, have a little marijuana buzz going and driving around in the snow and it being quiet and beautiful and how great that was. But it's still great. <laughs> it's still like, I mean, it's like, it's all good. It's just, um, the thing that I appreciate the most is I feel like when I was, you know, indulging living that way that I was so self-focused. It's like a narcissistic ego 
driven existence. And no matter how much you try to think that it isn't, it is, you know, it's like, and so, and that's like one of the main things that you're, you know, talk about in A and stuff. And that's, and it's really like the whole notion of higher power and God is when you surrender to a higher power, whatever that is, because it's not, you know, and that's the thing that I think keeps people away from AA and from that path is the whole God thing. But I mean, really, I, you know, I've heard people say that their higher power is like the ocean, you know, mm. just something that's yeah. greater than they are, something that's a bigger force than they are. And once you, once you understand that and somewhat give up to that, then what you're really doing is getting out of yourself. You know, you're just getting away from your own shit, your own ego. And that's a really huge thing. And so to me, I don't, have these deep dives into like a music like I used to would have this like musical obsession about this Bill Callahan record or or you know whatever the first week or two of sobriety I was obsessed with Sheryl Crow Uh I like never listened to Sheryl Crow in my whole life I was like just listening to are you strong enough to be my man (laughs) realized I was like singing that song to myself and I'm like (laughs) I'm like are you Tommy are you are you strong enough to be my man? You know? <laughs> wow. And I was like crying and I was, and I don't even do that. Any, like I, I listen to the classical station. I drive around and I don't have these weird self-indulgent dives anymore. You know? Interesting. I just try to be, you know, present and be more thoughtful to what other people is going on around me. That's nice not to be so ego-driven. I mean, I still obviously, you know, here I am talking about myself. <laughs> but, but well, I mean, I'm not. Well, you're sharing. Not me, me, me. Try not to. Well, me. and hopefully, in sharing, people are going to hear that, and you're helping others. I hope so. That's a program of attraction, as they say. And like, I certainly feel like if I can do it, I mean, that literally anybody can do it. You know. So, so when you say it's a program of attraction, you're speaking of AA. Yeah, and just in sobriety. You know? Sobriety in general. Yeah, I mean AA, but yeah, but sure, just sobriety. You know. I think what you're saying is, if you want this, you can make it happen. Yeah. And that's kind of what you're saying sobriety is all about. If you want that sobriety, you can make it happen. And it's got to be something you come to on your own. You know, I see it all the time of like, you know, nobody is going to change a behavior by somebody else telling them that they're bad or that, you know, they need to change this behavior. It's like, can't come from outside. It's got to come from yourself. Did you have that coming from the outside for you? I mean, yeah, I mean, sure, I had times that, you know, my wife or somebody saying, you know, know, smoking too much or doing this or whatever, you know. So you'd heard that. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work. That doesn't work. But what, yeah. It's got to, you got to come to it on your own. And it wasn't one big thing. It just kind of seeped into your consciousness that it's time to, to make this change. And I was attracted to my friend Gabriel's behavior and his, I was aware of how he had, you know, made major changes in his life. I think that's the best thing is if you can see somebody that you know is, has made many mistakes. I mean, seeing, you know, some sort of redemption, like that's what's appealing, you know. That's really great. So what's next? I mean, I've just been, you know, really trying to work on both businesses and then focusing on just my family. That sounds pretty golden to me. Yeah, it really it right? does sound really golden to me too. I mean, after making myself crazy for so long. I feel like future tripping is this now. Just trying to live in the present. Grief, gratitude, and greatness 
is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn and me, Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at griefgratitudegreat. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a review. Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. If you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or topics you'd like to hear more about, we'd love to hear from you. Call or text our show at 503-454-6646 or send us a message via the contact link at griefgratitudegreatness.com. Be sure to let your friends know about us and join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.